tonight on Joe Declassified Spec Ops. Join Topson, Crimson Guard Immoral, and Gyre Viper as they sit down with one of the most respected toy designers of all time, Mr. Guy Cassidy. This is the first of a two-part interview that covers not only some of the most iconic G.I. Joe vehicles of all time, but also unleashes some never-before-seen photographs, including pre-production models and unproduced concepts. This is the hidden world of G.I. Joe. This is Joe Declassified Spec Ops. Hello, and welcome to Joe Declassified Spec Ops. I am Gyre Viper, or Gary Goggles, or whatever is easier to remember when you're trying to think of someone to blame for this podcast's semi-occasional and unpredictable but never desultory output. Uh, with me today is my good friend Chris Murray, a.k.a. Top Son. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. It's like 30 degrees here. It's, what, like 68 by you? I'm wearing shorts. And we've heard enough from you. Um, we are also joined by our good friend, Kevin Watts. Kevin, how are you? I'm all right. It's about 28 here, if we want to keep talking about the weather. Not really, but it is... And, it we, is, got, and we have another 4 to 8 inches of snow coming in the next 48 hours. Yeah. That, on top of the 18 inches we've already gotten. It's awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> we can take all our snow outside. The snow's already outside. We can uh, take all of our toys outside and play. That's the one. All right. So, yeah, uh, you know, this is our – Kevin, you haven't been on since, what, episode three with Jim Sorensen? Yeah, but I figured there's only been three or four episodes, right? No, this is our ninth episode. We're actually – what? We're recording this on Sunday, February 16th, 2014. Our first episode was recorded on February 23rd, 2012. So essentially this is our two-year anniversary of having a podcast. Um, wow, nine episodes in two years, man. That's a that's I know. A right there. It's a milestone. Well, a lot of people ask us why we don't put out, you know, more episodes more frequently, and the answer is pretty simple. It's, you know, our topics and reveals and guests and whatever really specific and require very specific prep and planning, even though it's sort of haphazard. We, we try not to talk about things that you can just up and Google or turn to the collector next to you and ask about. Uh, or if you can, we try to make sure that information is delivered to you through some of the foremost experts in the hobby. Or like today, through the mouth and mind of a person who created some of the very toys that we collect uh, that shaped our passion for G.I. Joe. Being collectors, we tend to focus a lot on the hobby of G.I. Joe, what we're doing, what's coming down the road to collect. And if we do look back, we tend to think of our childhood and growing up with G.I. Joe. We don't always stop to think about that while we were kids, there were adults designing and making our toys. Uh, that while we were rolling vehicles across our backyards and carpets, there were people trying to come up with the next big thing for us to fight Cobra's forces with. Uh, well, today we are beyond grateful and extremely exceedingly excited uh, to have one of those designers, one of those people, one of those adults um, who literally poured sweat and blood and tears into making some of the most iconic toys we grew up with and still collect today. So on behalf of Jody Classified and Cobra788.blogspot.com, uh, we, are, we are very thrilled to present Mr. Guy Cassidy. Uh, welcome, Guy, and thank you for being here. Uh, thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor, and um, thank you. Yeah, no, no. It's it, without you, we wouldn't be here. See how that works. So you wouldn't be here if we weren't here, but we wouldn't be here if you weren't here. It's 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 really technical. Um, I, I never really I never really thought about that, and I think the the person I believe it was actually it might have been Kevin Watts or it could have been Chris Murray. I'm not sure which 
which person said it first, but it kind of took me back in that they said, well, you know, we, I just want to say that, uh, I'm just kind of ad-libbing here, but basically I just want to let you know that you've, you, how much we appreciated the toys that you designed and created for us. It brought, brought us so much happiness and pleasure. And, um, I'm like, I, I just, was so taken back by that and just never really realized it because I was doing a job back then. Um, and I knew children would be playing with it or kids would be playing with it and it would affect, you know, how they play with it and things of that nature. But, um, to actually have somebody say that and, and have since had others say that to me as well. So I want to, um, thank you guys. No, thank you. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's, like I sort of said, people sort of forget that there was these people create. Because I mean, as kids, you don't really think about it, and if you do, then you know you're not really playing. I guess with your toys, you're thinking about them. But you know, people sort of take that for granted. Even now, as adults, we sometimes look at stuff and we see, oh, I need to get that, or I had that as a kid, and we don't think about where it came from. Uh, we do that with a lot of things in life. So, um, but uh, I have to ask, what what did you think of the? Um, the big sinkhole opening up and eating all those cars. You're, you're the first person I thought of when I saw that. You're talking about the Corvettes? Yeah. Now, I didn't see it on TV, but I did read about it. Um, I guess it was an email that came through to some car collector magazine. And it said that it was it happened to the Corvette Museum. Yeah. And I went, excuse me? <laughs> so, um, you know... I was, you know, it can happen anytime, anywhere. I mean, I, I, I love cars. I went to school for automotive design at Art Center College and uh, ended up in the toy industry for almost 30 years. And uh, I still love cars today. I'm restoring a 66 Imperial Convertible. It's a labor of love. Um, and one thing I've, I've told people who have cars and some collectors um, is that uh, I believe in sharing them with others, you know, um, because there are things that, um, basically sharing them with others, um, bringing that enthusiasm, you know, forward and, uh, because they're, they're objects, they're things. And, um, I had said to a friend, uh, years ago who had a large car collection, I said, look, you don't use your cars. They sit in a garage, they're on blocks. I said, you know, they could sit there for 50 years and you die. And then the next guy buys it and will wrap it around a tree. That's very negative speaking. But I'm just saying that um, no matter how what, how much planning you do, it's inevitable that, you know, it could become damaged someday. So enjoy them. So there's, there's, there's an example of a perfect environment for all these rare one-of-a-kind um, vehicles. And Mother Earth decided to open up. Yeah, no, I. No, the, the yeah. no, and that's sort of honestly that that's sort of a metaphor for our our podcast, and honestly, everything that Chris and Kevin and I do, either separately or together, as collectors, is you know putting stuff out there for people to see and enjoy instead of having it sit on our cinder blocks or however they have their yeah. things displayed. And I really just hope a sinkhole doesn't open up and eat anything of mine, but it's welcome to do that to these two. Well, um, I think you guys have a great attitude and, uh, in that you're sharing it with others and your enthusiasm is just wonderful. And I think that brings my, it gets my, um, energy going 
and excitement going, and it, it does evoke or jar. I would say things that have happened, it, you know, that I created years ago, it, it jars them loose because I know Chris Murray has asked me, well, what about this? And, I, and I'll go, oh, I forgot about that, or I don't remember the name of this. Or, um, But you guys are sharing it, and uh, I don't mind sharing my photos and, and whatever I have, you know. So. Well, on that note, um, Chris or Kevin, uh, you guys want to take it from here? Sure. Um, you had just mentioned that uh, your education and that you went to school for automotive design. Um, how did you go from automotive design to working in the toy industry? Uh, good question. Well, you know, um, when you're, uh, you know, in a nutshell, the, um, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but Art Center College of Design is one of the top design schools in the world, might be the, one of the top five, I don't know. But I, I, I didn't realize at the time that it was, it really was um, a premier design school until until years later, how I had a better appreciation for it. The workload was extremely heavy. You just imagine that the, the curriculum was very, um, could be very intense and uh, required a lot of energy to, to, to do it. Um, and as a matter of fact, the younger you were, the better I think you were more adapt to handling it because I think if you were an older guy, older person getting into it, it would have been pretty tough. But uh, 1980, we had that uh, pretty bad recession. And leading up to that time, uh, I knew six months before graduating that the car industry was not hiring and that's pretty dismal. So here you are now. A uh, there's two semesters. I'm in my first semester as a senior, and I'm doing really well. And to know that when I graduate, there's nothing that will be offered in the states, and let alone in Europe. So so after graduating, uh, searched around for job prospects, and I'm from New Jersey. Uh, I grew up along the uh, ocean there, Jersey Shore. So I ended up coming back to New Jersey, and uh, about a year later, um, landing a job at Tonka Toys in uh, Spring Park, Minnesota. A fabulous place to work. Uh, my first job, I didn't even know it was, it was actually probably the best job I ever had, and didn't know it at the time. I think when you're green and starting out, everything's new and fresh, and, you know, the world is your oyster. <laughs> And, um, but I had more of an appreciation for it later on. I went from, while I was at Taka, I uh, designed the, uh, I was actually hired in the graphics department uh, because the jobs were pretty tough uh, to come by. And um, anyway, the uh, person that hired me was an alumni from my school. So I actually got a break, got hired in the graphics department at Taka. Six months later, I was in design. They gave me the redesign of the Tonka Mighty Dump Truck, which is an icon in the toy industry. And then from there, I uh, designed a whole slew of other construction vehicles for them. And uh, two years later, moved on to play school in Chicago, uh, where I did more uh, boys' toys, uh, oriented vehicles, um, power rods. Um, there were rechargeable cars. I also did... Um, Quite a few things for the Bigfoot line, uh, big uh, 
SUV kind of four by fours that crush cars, and then and then um, Hasbro bought out uh, Milton Bradley, which owned Play School, and brought me to Rhode Island, and uh, they said you're going to go on the GI Joe line, where I worked uh, designing uh, some really cool stuff, uh, only uh, vehicles for GI Joe for five years, and then from there just kind of moved on, and uh, Hasbro acquired um, Taka Corporation, and uh, so. I guess the next seven years or so, I ended up moving around internally, worked for Play School again. Actually, I worked for Tonka, then I worked for Play School again. Uh, I did a uh, foot-to-four, one-two-three bike redesign and um, a bubble mower and made bubbles. And then and last job at Hasbro was Tonka Toys. And um, then I went on to um, have my own business for 10 years Left it, went back, uh, went to work for Little Kids Bubble Toy Company, and then went on my own. And um, now I'm I'm doing automotive uh, illustration for private parties, and um, and I'm enjoying it. I assume you've always been into auto. Well, you obviously were always into automotive stuff, and that's what you went to school for. But like, what's it like, sort of transitioning from making toys for children to, you know, designing and illustrating. Uh, vehicles for adults. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, is it, were you, at the same time you were doing stuff, were you still doing sort of automotive stuff on the side, outside, like, for your own, you know, uh, sort of like a hobby or for freelance stuff outside of Hasbro automotive-wise, or sort of keep you sane, or were you just sort of toys, toys, toys uh, through those years? Because, I mean, now that you're doing Corvettes, um, You know, it's a little different than doing, uh, you know, massive G.I. Joe vehicles or even Tonka trucks. Uh, When I was, uh, while I was in the toy industry, I didn't do much. I didn't do any commission work in regards to drawing somebody's car. Um, I would, um, for fun, just as a break, I call it a 180. I would just kind of sketch uh, something. We'd be talking about some obscure car. And I would draw it for somebody. It could be a 65 GTO or a 70 Rebel Machine or whatever. So I would do pencil drawings a lot. I kept my hand in it. Uh, right now, I'm doing a series of uh, children's uh, pedal cars. And uh, those are the, uh, they're basically it's stamped steel. So it's kind of like a crossover. It's uh, auto industry, stamped steel. And it's vehicles, and it's for kids. So the series uh, are pedal cars from the 1930s through the 60s. And um, I was recently featured in the local newspaper, Providence Journal. I was interviewed, and I had done a small a series of small drawings of pedal cars. And this, uh, the Attleboro Art Museum picked up on it, and they wanted me to come in, bring some artwork, and they asked me if I would show my work in conjunction with um, an exhibit they have coming up for pedal car design and development April 9th through uh, the first week of May. There'll be 70 uh, actual examples of pedal cars, uh, and uh, I'm developing 10 renderings, uh, nine of which pertain or correspond to examples that'll be there. And uh, they're done old school style. Uh, or I, it's a style that's done on colored paper. 
it's cans on paper. So if you were doing a black car, you would do use black paper. If you're doing a red car, red paper, yellow car, and so forth. So uh, it's uh, I'm enjoying that. So when you were at Hasbro, you you know you mentioned that you worked there for five years on the GI Joe line, and you did a rather impressive list of vehicles that were actually created. I mean, I know you you designed a lot of things and they wouldn't have picked them all. I mean, you're known for making the Mobile Command Center, the Conquest, the Persuader, the Coastal Defender, the Rolling Thunder, the Skystorm, the AGP, the Battleforce 2000 line. There's the Swampfire, Serpentor's Chariot. You worked on part of the Defiant and then more. The Skystorm, I think I already mentioned that, sorry. The Hammerhead, the Desert Fox, the General. Um, what was the first vehicle of those vehicles that you actually worked on? So uh, the first one was the Conquest. And the interesting thing about this job was that the designer in the early days of Hasbro, we were required to not only, it's basically soup to nuts design, meaning you, you would uh, do your ideation sketches um, you would do exploded views for cost input and engineering. Um, you would do a costing model. Uh, you would also then do what is almost a pattern that could be basically from scratch that could be taken apart, replicated and refined a little bit in the model shop, and then painted and used as sales samples and toy fair samples. And then, of course, engineering would then refine it and make it uh, manufacturable. So uh, the first one I did was, like I said, the Conquest, and that idea came from looking at either a Newsweek magazine or a Time magazine, and it was a small picture of a jet. And again, I'm not a military guy. Uh, a lot of my, some of my peers were, were into that, and I, I just didn't, I just looked at stuff, I made it cool. I wanted something cool that the kids would say, wow, that looks really hot. I, I wasn't really basing it on an existing anything existing. So anyway, I saw this thumbnail, might have been two inches long, of this swept forward wing jet and the idea is that it could move, move horizontally due to the wing structure, the wing configuration. And so that, uh, I, that was my first hand-built model. Well, that's a good one. I mean, it's something to be proud of because, I mean, even... Today, I mean, just a few years ago, Hasbro was still producing that and selling it at Toys R Us and uh, at Target and other stores. So, I mean, for your first vehicle, that that's that was great. That was a good one. Yeah, I thought that was again. It was um, it was a it was a difficult model, not building models uh, on a daily basis. I that was really. Um, I was under the microscope. I had just come from Play School of Chicago. There was some political stuff going on that shouldn't have been going on, um, which I don't think this is the venue to get into. But um, it was uh, something that they're saying, okay, there's this hotshot guy from Art Center, very scrutinized. Um, what is he going to come up with? And so I'm doing this jet. And hey, I'll tell you, hand fabricating this thing was just... Um, uh, amazing, but it was a good. It was a good way. I was thrown into the fire <laughs> at first. Let's put it that way. So, um, and to make these patterns, to make these models, um, you had to make the top, the bottom, the. I'm just basically any part that 
for this uh, this toy you had to create and you had to assemble it and um, and the landing gear on this thing I had to put landing gear on it that retracted and I realized that the fuselage uh, the underside where you had to double two wheels it was a tri uh, tri wheel setup so um, the wheels just behind the uh, pilot they had to actually uh, fold and then retract up inside and I had to figure that out and uh, I think it came out quite successfully. So I was pleased with that. I remember you telling me a story that you weren't able to finish it and you had to have R&D work on it or something. Uh, yeah. Remember that story? It, that's right. Um, you know, the, we were under time constraints and I'm sure I was not, I was a little slow in the model build aspect. Um, I didn't want to deviate from my drawings. I felt that... Um, I wanted to be consistent with what I drew and bring that energy from the drawing into the model. So I, I'm sure I ran behind. So uh, it was agreed upon that uh, the underside of the wing would be taken care of in engineering. And the engineer said, no problem. We'll, uh, we'll make it a compound surface. And uh, because if you look at the underside of the Conquest, the, bottoms, the bottom wing that inserts into the upper section, you'll see that it's uh, kind of a compound. Uh, it comes out of the fuselage, and then all of a sudden it goes flat right to the tip of the wing. And it does have detail, but it was supposed to have been taken care of by engineering who promised uh, to do so. And I didn't see it until it was, we got um, production samples. I was absolutely twisted about it and uh, I was new at Hasbro also they had put it he had put a detail he flipped it around uh, right where the um, the rear uh, landing gear is located there's a there's a hatch door there's a door there and actually that covers the wheels and that is supposed to have, the detail on that is flipped so it's not supposed to have what looks like um, I think there's like a, a round the models behind me, and I, I don't want to get up to, this, to make a noise on the mic here, but the detail that's exposed is supposed to be on the inside. But otherwise, I think it, it came out very well for my first model and concept. So, uh, Guy, along those, with the same line of questioning here, uh, so looking at some of the sketches, some of your assorted sketches for, for the Conquest, um, all of which we have available uh, to be seen by whoever's listening. Uh, there are a couple of features that you have on there that are worth talking about. Uh, in one case, you had the, and I think you've referenced it uh, before in conversations, on the wings, where it looked like you were going to try to, uh, to try to get some light piping technology in. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's, um, it's on, if you, if you can, you know what, it's hard to see it, but if you go through some of the uh, sketches in my album, there's a couple of references to it. You actually went as far as to draw out the small light piping thing that would have been in there. It looks like it almost started out as a clip from the bottom of the wing. Yes, I think you're um, you're absolutely right. So was that something that you would say was cost reduced out, or basically the idea? You know, if the sun, if you're playing in a in a sunny situation, I don't know. The idea was that the light would enter this uh, K resin piece and if that's how yeah I think that's what I was looking at 
and it would just um, it would just be trans transmitted through. So it would it may enter through the top part of the wing, but the tips would light up. Does that make sense? So, so there'd be wing lights on a jet, basically. You didn't, you, you, you weren't planning right. they were lasers or anything, right? No, no, they weren't lasers. Just a little extra little play value, but I'm sure they were cost reduced out because that part, um, although the canopy is made of K resin, it, you know, I, I would have thought where you'd want to have the, um, those illuminated tips. You'd probably want them a color. But you need to mold it the same color as the canopy, so it just it just didn't make sense. I, I think that's why they killed it. Guy, you're pretty well known for working on some of the largest vehicles in the line, uh, some of which you designed from the ground up. So let's talk about one of them, the Mobile Command Center. Okay, <laughs> sure. Um, how did how did that how did that idea first come about? Well, it was uh, also known as the Tackle Box, um, as well internally. Uh, the idea actually came from <clears throat> Hasbro acquired Milton Bradley. Milton Bradley had a division in England, and that was actually a submission from the uh, Milton Bradley uh, office in England. So um, that came in, and I think there was a lot of um, assumption on upper executives there's a lot of assumption, uh, I guess, when the acquisition took place. I think there was a little arrogance going on, too, with upper management at Hasbro. So uh, with the acquisitions, so now they're driving the bus. So the mobile command center was presented, and I don't recall if that was the actual name, but let's just refer to it as such. And it looked like a, a big turtle. It looked like a turtle. Um, the driver or the front of it had a long neck on it and I believe it telescoped this goes back a ways guys so so and then the rest of it opened up like a tackle box but it was a very crude crude model I mean there was the thought that was put into it was that it opened up it opened up like a tackle box it wasn't a well it wasn't thought out aesthetically and there were, it was still lacking some play value but anyway Hasbro management bought into it, and um, so I acquired this concept to work out, and which actually ultimately came, you know, what you see today. So during the process, um, it was learned that um, there was a huge royalty attached to this thing, and I don't know why. If I want to come up with a figure of like two hundred eighty-five thousand dollar royalty was attached to it I think that's the total they had to pay out again that's just uh, it could be hearsay but I know that there was a, a sizable royalty attached to it and, the, and which added to the cost of the piece so I know management was really peeved about the whole thing that there was this royalty attached to it they were not making as much profit as they wanted to it was a big piece to tool up and mind you I think that the average lifespan of any Joe vehicle produced was two years, and I believe this ran over two years. It was quite successful. Would you say that added royalty, the added cost, was there anything that you wanted to incorporate into it that was that had to be costed out due to that additional money that had to be paid to you know, the originator of the, of the concept? 
I couldn't tell you that. Uh, all I know is that it was early, early on. Uh, it was well into maybe the second presentation of the mobile command center, and it was realized. <laughs> so, um, again, I had been already started working on it. I had to do some thumbnails. I did the exploded view, which I think you've got somewhere, of the uh, mobile command center. And I think we, there might have been a cost reduction done at that time, a piece count. So, and of course, at that time, they're trying to figure out what parts can be ganged together to save money into. I really can't say if there was, if, if it was, uh, it affected. Well, that would, that would explain some of the parts on it for sure. There were reused missiles from the Snowcat. Oh. Um, yeah. So, you know, I could, I could, I could, following what you just said there, it, it, it makes sense as to how they would reuse some of the older parts to keep that cost down. I, I just want to interject by saying that, you know, coming from Tonka Toys, they used to utilize existing pieces whenever they could to save tooling, which I think makes sense. And to me, a missile is a missile is a missile, unless it really, unless it really um, stylistically is for that particular vehicle, whether it's a jet or a, a wheeled vehicle, you know. And I remember early on saying, why don't we just use the existing stuff? We won't have to tool up for it because it's, duh, it saves money. Um, so I think they started doing that more uh, in the mid-'80s. Recently, a piece of artwork surfaced uh, that shows the Mobile Command Center in green. Uh, and it's very, it's a, it's a very closer with G.I. Joe type green, like a, a, an early van, uh, something from that, from that era. Do you have any recollection of, you know, maybe it being presented in, in a more, in, in a, in a green color, or if there was some kind of plans for it at some point or anything, any recollection at all that would kind of support the piece of artwork that, you know, everybody's going to get a chance to see when they're listening to the podcast. Well, because, you know, G.I. Joe green, go hand in hand initially. So uh, it is quite possible. And I know I did a, a slew of color studies on it as well, but I think we might have been looking at doing green, but that was a lot of green. <laughs> so um, I think that's why we ended up doing um, this, uh, the color that it was molded in, that, that uh, beige or tan, almost like a desert flavor. Uh, I found that when I attended the 2010 JoeCon, and uh, I've met a lot of collectors there, a lot of enthusiasts there. Um, I would just bring up little, little tidbit things, little trivial things. And one of the uh, things that I tried to incorporate in were things like maybe uh, a birth date or something. So on the side of the mobile command center, it says 11. It says 11, and there's a huge six. And then there's a 56 on there, and, well, that's my birthday. Wow, that's great. <laughs> uh, so, and um, this came after the, the Persuader. And, of course, the Persuader, the Fender of the Persuader, there's a serial number that has my last name in it that's right on the Fender, and um, which got signed off by management. And it wasn't until the guy in the model shop realized that I had my last name incorporated into the... Uh, into a serial number. So we started doing that with different, just to have fun with it because it's, you know, uh, it's kind of a, just to have fun. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, just say the mobile command center as an adult is one of my favorite toys. I, I never had one as a kid, but as an adult collector, it was one of those things that I, 
it's there's just so many play features that I look at and I think, wow, you know, they don't do anything like that anymore with, you know, the three different levels, the med bay, the, the prison cell, the uh, thing, the repair bay for the vehicles. Anyway, it just, it turned out to be a, an, a really awesome design and I've really grown to appreciate it more and more as I, as I look at the one I own now. I think the, so. I think the concept uh, didn't have as much play features in it. And the original concept might have actually just been a two-tiered setup instead of a three, which, again, I it's been a long time, so I, I don't remember that. But also, I do remember we were looking at using, possibly using the Sergeant Slaughter vehicle uh, in with this, and maybe that had to be costed out. And again, that's, a, that's kind of a, um, a ghost in my memory there. But I know that, that there's a... Go ahead. I was going to say that 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 triple T vehicle is in the vehicle bay in an awful lot of photography for that piece. So uh, that would make perfect sense. And also, that's one of the few vehicles that fits in that vehicle bay perfectly. Hmm. So I think that I think we were trying to get that in there. We had to cost it out. I mean, we had to remove it, and it could have been because of the royalty. <laughs> Well, now that we've talked about one of the largest vehicles you ever made, uh, let's let me ask you about the Coastal Defender, one of the smallest ones you ever made. For me, I've really grown to appreciate that vehicle as well. Just kind of the, the concept of it being a, a, a secret hidden little thing on a on a on a dock of a of a, sh- a shipyard or something, you know, waiting to uh, pop out and take out Cobra when they attack. But what I really liked about it is after I met you and you were able to share with me some of those early images of your, your concepts, which were, you know, were also being uh, shared with this podcast so everyone could see, was how you create your, some of your original ideas was that it was going to be much larger, it was going to be modular, you know, the parts could have snapped together, and instead of being, you know, one little vehicle, it became like a base with very similar to the mobile command center with a you know, a vehicle transport bay, uh, a command center, and stuff like that. And I was just kind of hoping you could talk a little bit more about some of your original ideas and, and your work on that particular vehicle. Well, I mean, the way that the Coastal Defender was a, a low price point. Um, I don't know if it was like a 249 It was really, really low end, you know, uh, price point. And it was uh, supposed to have been a much grander, larger um, play set. Uh, trailer basically it was a trailered tech center command center i see that yeah that's what it was supposed to be (laughs) that's again that's one of those you know it's one of those um concepts that you know we're given a night to say okay we need um we we have three price points um say 249 price points we have five uh four Three or four, five ninety nine. We have a couple nine ninety nine. We have eighteen ninety nine. We have a twenty four ninety nine price point, and we need something for GI Joe and Cobra. So I'm I'm going back here. This is like I think this could be the second one I did for Hasbro, designed for Hasbro. And so I was thinking, what would it be kind of cool to have something that could unfold? I was really into this unfold thing, kind of a mystery, you know. Uh, give the kids something uh, like uh, something interesting to look at, and and, uh, and it's more demonstrative and hands-on play that would transform. I seem to remember you saying that you ended up winning uh, like an in-house award for this design. 
I don't really remember the details though. Oh, it wasn't so much. Uh, okay, it wasn't so much an award. I, uh, the head of was the head of sales. It was a presentation, and he said that that for the m- amount of money that you're paying for a very inexpensive toy, there was a lot of play value in this. He said it was like the most amazing thing, and that we, meaning toward Hasbro as a as a whole, or horses and, and GI Joe should be trying to do more things like this. So basically, low, very inexpensive, but with a ton of play value. And that was it. I got no award. <laughs> I got a handshake. <laughs> okay, so you were just praised on the on the ability that you had so many play features in such an inexpensive vehicle for kids. Correct. Okay, all right. Well, like I said, as an adult collector, once again, you know, it's 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 something that I've, I've grown to to really appreciate and love. And like the early sketches here show that you know, I really like the idea of how you you, know, you called it a modular mobile command center, and it looked like you had the you know one of the ideas was to have multiple little trailers that could unfold and connect to each other and make a larger like you said tech center and Ford operating base or something. So it was, right. it was really cool, and I. It's something I kind of wish we got to see more of or actually see something like this actually happen. And you know that, again, this is something that is not based on anything. Well, I'm sure there's some real world stuff in here, but it's really not based on anything. It's just an imagination. You're just using your imagination and what would kids love to see. I think sometimes if we restrict ourselves to, um, we put too many restrictions on our on our creativity sometimes. So try to be... Go ahead. Well, I just say I just I, I especially really like how you keep saying for kids. You know, this is something that you are trying to make for for children to, to truly enjoy and have fun playing with, and that's why you know I said what I said. You know how you brought you know years and years of happiness to to millions of children, including myself, and I really appreciate the work you did. That's because of stuff like this. Thank you. I noticed that uh, a lot of my sketches had flags on them. I think I was uh, really big into flags and whip antennas, which probably had something to do with seeing the movie Alien or Aliens over the years. And, uh, oh, I know, it was the um, Close Encounters of the uh, Third Kind. I think the spaceship at the end um, had all this antenna stuff on it. I don't know if you recall. And... uh, it just, when it showed up and turned around, it had all these antennas on. I thought, hey, that's pretty cool. Well, you, 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 you spoke about a lot, and as just touching on what Chris said about, you know, having this for kids, um, that sort of uh, brings us to our, our next item, which is the Rolling Thunder, which there's no way this thing was made for kids because it's way too fun, and kids don't deserve to have that much fun. Um, I mean, I, when, when the, the, rolling, the Rolling Thunder has, I mean... Has anyone ever counted the play features on this thing? I mean, is it, has anyone ever really just been like... I mean, it's it's an overwhelming... There's things that hover, there's things that drive, there's things that drive out of it, there's things that shoot out of it. I mean, that just doesn't sound like anything kids would have fun with, so obviously you didn't have them in mind for this. Um, so I, I have to ask, what did you have in mind for this? Because it, it, it wasn't playability at all. I mean, what, 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 what was the spark for this thing? I mean, it's, um, it, it's not something you... 
of all the other toy lines in the eighties, the the one thing about that 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 really stands out with GI Joe is the the absolute scope that Hasbro managed to get away with and actually put out there, despite any cost cutting, despite all the unproduced stuff. There are things that made it out there that are just unparalleled, even still today. Um, and I think the Rolling Thunder is obviously one of those. So where did where did this thing come from? Where, I mean, did did you just not sleep for a while? Like what? After uh, I was beginning to, I was becoming known as the king of big vehicles, and so um, you know, how do we top the Mobile Command Center? I I recall it was uh, I was it. I was trying to figure out what to do, and I was working very hard. And for two, I remember two weeks straight, I was working on the next big thing. And um, the movie Aliens was coming up, and I was really excited to go back and see that because I saw the first one, which scared the uh, which scared the crud out of me. And uh, so anyway, I uh, I struggled on this. How do I top that? How do I top myself? So. The head of Boys Toys was walking through, Bob Prupus, and I asked him, I said, hey, Bob, in mind that I want to ask you a question. I'm kind of stuck here. What is, uh, what in your mind do you envision as the ultimate vehicle, ultimate G.I. Joe vehicle? And, of course, he came back, and, and I embellished. As a matter of fact, I think I embarrassed him at the 2010 Joe Con. He's a, he's a nice guy, and... And he said, well, and uh, I'm just kind of paraphrasing, he goes, says, well, I could see something, it's this massive armored vehicle uh, bristling with missiles and, uh, and rockets and guns and uh, lots of armament, lots of, lots of men, you know, lots of guys all over it, and uh, just really powerful and menacing. And I'm like, okay, okay. So I went to see the movie Aliens that night, and uh, yes, it scared the crap out of me again. And because uh, nowadays, I guess it's pretty tame, but there was a reconnaissance vehicle, and um, I'm sure you guys probably could tell me what it was called, but when they flew down to the planet to check it out, there was a vehicle there that they launched, and essentially what it was was the, um, a modified airport support vehicle that... They're, they look like big shoe boxes. They they are designed to go underneath the wings of planes, and they supply fuel and air and whatever support for the aircraft when it's being serviced. And I remember as they were about to crash through some sort of uh, alien goo or resin, it looked like uh, there was a small gun on the roof that they prepared to crash, and the roof and the Roof-mounted gun slid down the top and down the back, and uh, I remember the wheels of this thing. Of course, these crafts, this vehicle in real life, the tires are as tall as the vehicle. So I mean, basically, there might be the vehicle is maybe an inch or two taller than the the tire, the diameter of the tire, which gave me the idea for the Rolling Thunder. Those two things. So I came back the next day and drew. I created what you now know as the Rolling Thunder. That's it. Wow. <laughs> just, yeah, no. That's that's it. So it had everything you could think of: um, retractable, you know, retractable cannon that uh, slid back and rotated and pivoted gun and huge long-range missiles. And actually, we never really we never played it up, but you know, it was like atomic warheads on those things. But 
this is a peaceful thing, so we you could you could never even internals refer to them as you know nuclear warheads. So they were just long range missiles. And of course, being Joe and being a fantasy, there are dumb bombs that are that would come off in, in flight. I guess when the uh, missiles en route to Cobra headquarters, whatever it is, you have these bombs that would come off in theory and bomb other installations along the way. So you talked about Prupus, and you talked. I think it was Prupus talking about you know having Joes all over it and that sort of thing. And I know yeah. that you just stuck to vehicles. Did did. Did they ever come up to you with with driver with the drivers for your vehicles and ask you what do you think about this driver? What do you think about Armadillo? What do you think about gosh any given driver that comes with anything you've designed? Like did did they ever come up to you and and sort of say hey this is the driver? Did they ever ask your input? Did did a vehicle ever influence a driver? Did a driver ever influence a vehicle a little bit? Uh, you know I think Mark Pennington or Ron Rudat and uh, they. And whoever else was hired at the time to do figures, they would just they would just get a sketch of mine, and they kind of knew the premise behind it, and come up with a guy that would just make sense. And again, it was they would just line up the um, whoever is the driver, whoever the driver was for Rolling Thunder. They just do a bunch of uh, ideations on the guy, and they pick one. I think my only contribution to any figure was um, the helmet for the Persuader. The helmet matches the, the contour or the side profile of the Persuader itself. So uh, I think Mark Pennington did the figure for that, and he said, you know, I'm going to keep the helmet. I like it. And that was it. That sketchbook that you gave me a while back that's photocopied in brown, I flipped through that real quick. I did see one piece that it was like a, a two-part uh, join for the chin gun that was, you know, engineered out to be one piece? Um, I think the only thing that I could think of that was cost out that was um, the Gullwing, the Gullwing uh, canopy made it in, but um, the idea was that when you lifted the canopy, you would have steps that would automatically uh, lower. And they removed for they cost reduced that out. Um, I think if if there's an exploder view somewhere, um, I don't know if there is a you have an exploder view for that. I don't specifically have an exploder view, but but what you are talking about is illustrated in, in some of the sketches. So okay, so it, so we'll so there'll be there'll be something to back up that reference. Oh, there it is. Yeah, integral access ladder swings down. There is so much to design in this thing, and, and again, how it went together, because um, now we're moving, Hasbro was moving forward and slowly taking away the task for, of building, having the, the designer build tight models for replication, uh, because they wanted us to do more ideation and um, creating, you know, d development, and the models took up so much time, so... Um, the only thing I did for the model in the Rolling Thunder was the small reconnaissance vehicle, and the rest of it um, I supervised. I did a whole mess of um, sketches so that the model model makers that were nearby me at the time could just work real close, and we bang that thing out. It was it was a successful piece. Yeah, one thing I one thing I can say since we uh, we have that model for reference is uh, you had missiles on the back 
of that scout vehicle that uh, apparently got costed out of the final version. Oh, yeah. That's right. They did. <laughs> Swine. <laughs> they did cost it out. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know why. They could have just been... Maybe they were too small and they um, it didn't fit into the tooling. That's my only thought there. That's good with me. I just wanted to reference more for the material that we have. It is uh, it is one of my favorites that I did for Hasbro. It's probably one of one of my. It is my favorite. It just uh, it was I was uh, probably on top of my game at that time when it came out, and um, I I think that particular year, and I don't remember the other two other vehicles I designed that year. I really really tried to. Um, Put my best foot forward. I was hoping for um, a better bonus the following year, and uh, because the previous year it wasn't too good, so it was uh, the next, the following year after the Rolling Thunder, Desert Fox, and Sky Storm came out. It was discover. I discovered that there wasn't much in the budget, so there was pretty much a dismal bonus. So. <laughs> So great stuff, but hey, I just—I guess I was just grateful I had a job. Well, I, I got a question. I was just something I just noticed on the art that was different than what was actually produced. Cost cutting is a common theme in items that are produced. You know, basically, this is what I designed. Then they basically, and then you know, you have to cut something out to make it cheaper. And one of the things I noticed in your concept art, you made, you had one of those ballistic missiles, yet we actually were given two And when you when the toy was actually made. I was just wondering, you know, I would assume that to make it cheaper, that would be the first thing they would cut is one of those large missiles. I was just wondering if you remember anything about that or anything interesting. No, I think they, I think that because I think that what shocked everybody was that when the, um, Probably when the costing model was presented, and then of course later when it was, you know, we did this this model. But um, when it became, I uh, said the prototype was done. I think it was just the fact that you had this huge thing that came into the presentation dome, and it had the 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 usual stuff. It had, you know, four fen. Well, there were four fenders, four chair-mounted laser cannons with, you know, a guy in each cannon. There was a I think one guy inside the um, the big cannon in the back, and I think there were a lot of posts all over it, so you could put a bunch of guys everywhere and seated in the cockpit driving this thing. And then all of a sudden, it just opened up. It, the, the cannon slid back. The center area opened up. This vehicle came out, with a, which you could put a guy in. And then these two massive missiles rose up out of it i mean so i think it was just the presentation i think that's why they didn't want to cost they didn't want to kill it and i think it also set a precedent because it was produced for three years it's a nice feature and it, it you know it, it makes it you know at least has two shots instead of one you only have such a giant vehicle going out the battle shoot one time and then have to go home at least they could do it twice so it was it was cool it looked great so thank uh, you very much yeah thank you Thank you. So, still, still cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, continuing the theme of incredibly large GI Joe toys, you also uh, brought us the uh, general. I would love to hear some of your uh, concepts and ideas on the creation of the general. The general. 
All right. So, I mean, the general that 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 came after the conquest, actually, somewhere in there, and I envisioned this huge, huge vehicle because um, what Cobra had the dome, the uh, pterodrome. I figured, why not do? You had the aircraft carrier that was uh, now being, you know, it was going to be put to rest very soon, very expensive to produce. So I thought, well, why not something that's on wheels, that's huge, that can be, that can roll from room to room. And, and of course, the premise behind that is so wide that the landing strip with a landing pad on it would, could fold up so it could fit through, a, uh, say, a 30-inch wide door or a 29-inch wide door frame, and then fold back each side. So it was a pretty wide, um, pretty big uh, concept. So it was like a rolling platform. Uh, I love that photo that you supplied us that actually shows the rolling fun uh, thunder on top of the costing model you created to show oh. how big it really was. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's... Uh, all right, the, all right, I have to fast forward. Um, that, yes, okay, so now, years later, it's the concept uh, for the general has been, is now seen in a flat file by a vice president, and they said, what is that? And I said, well, that was what I called the Rolling Thunder, which, of course, now is the Rolling, oh, I named it something else, so I named the Rolling Thunder for what you know as a Rolling Thunder. So they said, well, we'll call it, I said, well, what do you want to call it? We'll call it the general. I said, all right. So they loved it. They loved the whole idea. So um, they're in that particular one, uh, that's, yeah, you can see how big it is. And um, and uh, you're right. I put the general, I put the rolling thunder on top of the general's deck. And I think the, um, it's still wider than the, the rolling thunder is long. Um, but of course, the the final piece is is not as large as the costing model. I think they even reduced some of the tires as well, if I'm not mistaken. Let's see. That's um... well. You just said that the uh, the someone that you know, one of the uh, producers or whatever. I'm sorry, what you said uh, saw the file, the concept of it in a flat file. Uh, right. Why was it in a flat file and not presented like a normal vehicle would have been presented? My manager. My, not my immediate, but his, uh, the one above him, the director, had seen it. And um, I didn't realize that he had something up his sleeve, which, was, which would become the Defiant shuttle. So um, he said, look, I don't show this to anyone. Uh, I want you to shelve this thing. I know nobody to see it. Put it away. And I said, okay, fine. So um, within a short period of time after him reviewing it, all of a sudden there was this big, uh, uh, there was a lot of commotion going on and we, all the designers had to, were pulled together and some guys that uh, were support in the model shop came together and they said, okay, we're going to do basically a crash program and we're going to build the Defiant. And... So that's when uh, I'll work on all, I'm kind of going off the sidetracking here, but, but everything in R&D for G.I. Joe came to a halt, and every person was assigned a, a portion of the Defiant and, and uh, to get that thing out the door. So anyway, the general, <laughs> back to the general. 
Well, so basically what you're saying is you created the concept of the general, and then right. instead of presenting it to see if it'd get made that next year, you were asked to hide it because your supervisor wanted to have have that not distract from the creation of the Defiant. That's correct. So so you so what did you do on the Defiant? What did you work on? Each of us were given the task to uh, take on a section of it, and mine was to mine was to build the um, it's on the gantry. It was to build the suspension for it, the suspension in the wheels. Now, you know, I knew how big it was, but again, there was a cost involved, and I think I wanted to have uh, steel axles put through this thing with some substantial tires because otherwise it would just collapse. So that wasn't in the cards. And, you know, we're rushing to get this thing, uh, we're rushing to hit this crazy deadline to get it into uh, engineering and manufacturing. So basically that's that what I created, it, the, the shuttle bottoms out because it just can't support the weight. So it's pretty sad. But I did the suspension on it. Well, it's something that's so big that I don't think most people or kids actually pushed around their yard and played with. That's one of those things where you kind of put it together, parked it, and left it. So, you know, it worked out fine. I think, you know, it's awesome I had, you know, that you actually part. How, how you said that everyone was a part of such an iconic vehicle like the Defiant. Everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's really cool. Yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, back on the general... Um, I noticed on the uh, pictures you uh, provided us that you came up with the original concept and the costing model, but it was actually finished by another designer by the name of Bill Young. Yes, that's uh, correct. Was that just because they needed you on something else, or is there anything no, behind that story? No, I I really wanted out of G.I. Joe. I think it was, um, for me, it had lost its, uh, I had lost the spark in there. Um, it was becoming a little too staid for me. It wasn't exciting any longer. And so, um, I, I left the Joe group in 1990. I was there for about five, a little over five years. So the general and the hammerhead, Cobra hammerhead, I were, I developed initially uh, from basically conceptual sketches, exploded views, costing model, and then um, they uh, they had to turn it over to another designer to finish them. So I had to move on, and uh, and that's when Bill Young uh, was given the task of doing the general. I'm not sure, but he may have also had the hammerhead as well. But uh, I couldn't have asked for. I mean, uh, he was just a, a, a he is a. a, a very bright and uh, accomplished uh, designer, and uh, he finished it. I have to say, we both we it was a collaborative effort, so I think they both came out really well. I, I'd just like to say, real quick, guy, that my favorite memory of the general is we went up to the third floor of of uh, of my mom's apartment building, and we tied uh, plastic grocery bags to it, like parachutes. <laughs> And okay. threw it off the third floor uh, into our backyard, which was cement, and um, and it completely survived. The wheels popped off and went like forty feet in the air, 
but it completely uh, it completely survived that and blowing up firecrackers in it for our homemade movies. It was it's a well it's a very sturdy uh, toy for uh, for what it was. You don't really get that anymore these days. Now it, you drop it, it's dead. So I want to applaud you that you can throw it off the third floor of something and have it land on the cement. It completely survives. It was amazing. That's my my fondest memory, other than getting it, of course. So, Guy, we know uh, we've been talking about some of the items that you designed that made it to retail. um, But one thing that we've learned from talking to different people is sometimes the items that make it to retail are just the tip of the iceberg. And there have been some fantastic concepts that uh, were introduced at one point or another and uh, and denied, never made it past the drawing stage or maybe made it to a model stage but still didn't make it to final production. Uh, one piece I'd like to talk about um, is a Cobra submarine that I know you designed. I want to say, I think you had told me you designed it in 1985, um, but I remember when I first spoke to you about it, you were very fond of it, very fond of the of the shape and the idea, and I believe you, you, you tried to present it more than once uh, and were denied more than once on it, but, but of all of the unproduced concepts that we've seen, I, I've seen more material on that, so it was, it was obvious your heart was really into pushing this submarine, even though it, it unfortunately uh, didn't make it out. So let's. So we, we have all the artwork for for the submarine available. Let's talk about let's talk about that submarine. How did all that come about? Uh, I did, I just think that's something I wanted to pursue. Um, is for Cobra, Cobra sub. I did. I didn't do a lot of uh, Cobra uh, for whatever reason. But um, I thought Cobra Cobra always seemed to have really slick things. You know, really slick looking uh, craft. And I thought, hey, a Cobra sub would be pretty cool. And uh, the idea, again, was to do basically something that's on the floor. If you get your head around it, you know, it's like, well, it's not in the water, obviously. But there would be wheels on it, so the kid could push it around. And the props or the screws on the, you know, you could see the props turning as you you push this thing around the floor. You could have... um, multiple uh, missiles or uh, torpedoes launch from out of the hull and landing craft could land on it you could have um, missiles that would come up out of the deck and so it was it would be like a um, I wouldn't say another version of say the Cobra's version of Rolling Thunder but if you get the idea it would be a very large craft that could have a lot of uh, play value a lot of a lot of uh, Cobra Characters could be on it, and it's pretty, pretty, very impressive thing. So, what was it that kept it out of production? It certainly looks like it's a, it's a pretty slick piece. It looks like it would have been a lot of fun to play with. And, you know, in '85, they came out with that Cobra Moray boat. They could have been, uh, it would have certainly given Cobra uh, sea superiority. Uh, well, maybe not in the face of the flag, but you know, it would still give them something that could definitely attack the flag. Right. So, let's see, this is 1980, September 86. I think, I think management couldn't get their head around it. Uh, the idea of a submarine being pushed around on a carpet, on a floor. I just think they, from, I just think they could not grasp it. And that's, that's really what happened there. You know, water toys, you know, water toys are also deemed seasonal. But, again, this, is not, this was not meant to go into a bathtub. 
Well, I mean, it's it's of all of the unproduced concepts that I've seen, uh, it, it was one that always that always stuck out to me just because there was nothing like it ever really done. Years later, they did something called the Barracuda around 91 or 92, but that was a very small one-man submarine. It was actually meant to go into uh, it, it, to go into a pool or a bathtub. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was, it was, it's, it's a shame that it never really, I mean, short of maybe the shark, which was a flying submarine, it, it's, it's something that's to this day still missing from yeah. uh, the G.I. Joe and Cobra line. So it's, it's really a shame that that didn't make it out. And you're right. I did try uh, several times, about a year apart, to, to get a Cobra sub recognized as a viable playset, some something that the kids could play with. But I, it just, again, it just came down to um, getting that idea through uh, that it was not a seasonal toy. It was something year-round, and um, and and, the, and I think it could have been also timing as well. So. And price point, uh, maybe there was something else that was better that, you know, I said, well, they probably felt it just wasn't a good fit. Well, this is the first time I've personally looked at all these sketches. And I have to admit, it's actually really impressive and would have made a, I think it would have made a great addition to the G.I. Joe line. So I'm actually kind of sad that we didn't get this because this would have been a, a great toy to have go up against the flag and stuff like that. So... So you can see really good. in this in the drawing, uh, you could see how wide it is, and I and that was drawn to scale, I believe, or it, it's to scale, um, or it could be scaled up, up or down. But let's put it this way: the the two views there, the side profile and the top, um, are uh, in scale with each other to give you an idea. So if you blew it up. And you can imagine, I mean, uh, it's definitely like a, kill, like a killer shark, you know, killer whale kind of thing. Cool. Still pretty shark looking. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, oh. it's one of my favorite pieces of art uh, that I own is that submarine. I really, it's, it's, it's a fantastic piece. I look at it all the time. And I tell people about it all the time. Did you know that there was going to be a Cobra submarine that we never got? So it's, uh, it's, it's cool that it gets to see the light of day now through the Declassified podcast and with your and commentary attached to it. It could have, it could have also coincided with um, the um, Cobra Island that was never produced. Yeah, we, 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 have, we did talk about that on a previous podcast, but that would be something we would love to discuss with you at some point yeah, as like, well. Yeah, I mean, that was, it, it's funny because the, the Cobra Island podcast was our very first episode and, and uh, it was like eight hours of recording. <laughs> not yeah, so yes, it was with about eight hours of prep, which have never been aired because it's not uh, friendly for the universe to hear. But I gotta say, this Cobra sub is is. I mean, it looks like a when when it comes to to the sort of aesthetics of Cobra and what Cobra you know was in the eighties as opposed to the nineties or anywhere else. Like this Cobra sub is Cobra, and it looks. Like it would have been, it, it just looks iconic, Cobra, and I, I can't, I can't stress enough how much uh, I think this, I think this vehicle would have been one of those things that that would have been just as uh, admired as any other Cobra vehicle that is uh, considered, you know, pure Cobra. Like when you, when I say Cobra, you say, you know, insert vehicle name. I really do think that this, this would have been that. I, I. 
just I mean, this is just based on the art. So the toy probably knowing how much you put into toys that actually made it through with their play features and what they were intended for, and um, despite all cost cutting and whatever, I really think this would have been huge. And I would have loved to have had a Cobra submarine on wheels. I think it's I to have that feature with the wheels lets kids know that you know their imagination is fine they don't need to go stick it in the bathtub um which then encourages them to play with all their stuff all the time and then it becomes a less seasonal type thing i mean i think it i don't know i think this is horribly taken for granted and i want a time machine very bad to go correct this error because i do think it's an error thank you i was gonna say personally i keep looking at it and thinking like well you know you've got the flag that obviously isn't going in water i mean imagine imagine having a pitch battle between like a couple of submarines going up against the flag. You know, yeah. You're, you're talking about a classic, you know, you know, some classic World War II, you know, battles, you know, that you could reenact with your, with, I just, it just seems like it would have been a really cool fit to have. If Joes have the flag, you know, which could, which could take a moray out of the water, then, you know, Cobra would need to go under the water to defend it, to defend themselves anyway. So it just, it, it is a shame. I think it, I think it would have been, of all the of all the, the unproduced concepts we've seen, this one stands out in the in the top ten of what would have been cool to see done. Guy, uh, you kind of mentioned you know that you know you did a lot of unproduced stuff basically, and I was just kind of curious on a given year, how many vehicles would you design? I mean, did you have a requirement where you had to do so many or or anything like that? I mean, like how many would you do? That's a good question. I I would say the first. Um uh, it looked like I think the first three years there might have been first two years might have been three a year because that's that's probably all we could do because we again we did soup to nuts we had to you know conceptualization all the drawings involved um, and then building the models so those were very time consuming so generally it was I would say three as time went on um, and again I it just depended on but I mean, I, I was looking at like the Battle Force Two Thousand. Were there six vehicles in that, or four? I don't remember for Battle Force Two Thousand. But I mean, that was a there whole. were there were five, and then I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. There were five, and then there was a smaller one that came out uh, in 1989. That that was probably like just a footnote. But the the ones that went together, there were five of them. Okay, so there were those. And I know that that particular year I did a few others. So uh, it really it varied. And, and, and then, of course, on top of that, since we're no longer doing models, and then there, it gave us more time to do more conceptual development, more ideation, more creative, try to create other uh, innovative product. So on those first couple of years, did you, did you pretty much make your ideas? I mean, did you come up with like five ideas and they picked three? Or did you pretty much come up with three ideas and they loved them and you made those three? Oh. Uh, I think we were assigned or we pick a price point, whether it's Joe or Cobra. So, um, all I can think of was that that's what I, the ones I did initially, those first two years, um, I would just choose the price point, and um, sometimes they would uh, marketing would make uh, make a change and say, "Hey, you know, th- we can put this. Let's let's take this out of a two forty nine price point, and put it in an eight ninety nine price point. You know, so you could really add some 
some more innovation to it or more parts to it. I mean, I think the Persuader initially was, my intention was to make it a Cobra uh, vehicle uh, because I know I illustrated it in red. <laughs> and then we changed it. I, then I had to marker over it for presentation. I, it ended up looking brown. Um, but the red, the drivers or the, um, the figures in it remained red. And then it became, of course, green. Well, Guy, uh, you know, we, we've gone kind of long here, longer than we uh, might have expected. Uh, we don't want to keep you much longer, and you have graciously offered to come back again to maybe discuss uh, some of your other vehicles. So that would is uh, we appreciate you coming on today, and thank you so much for offering to come back on another time, uh, at which point maybe we can flesh out some of your other designs and talk about them. But I don't think I have any further questions. Uh, if the other two don't, then perhaps you know we can wrap this up and say, everyone, thank you so much for having Guy on. Thank, or, you, sorry, guy. thank you, Guy, for coming on. And uh, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so much to talk about. I mean, uh, the, uh, you guys have really. Um, I think the, the fun thing about doing this is that because you know, creating when you're working for a company, there's a lot of pressure to produce uh and in addition to that you've got personalities you're dealing with and um you know and as as you move forward in life you don't want to hold any grudges and you want to kind of move forward and you want to try to focus i think we focus too much on the negative stuff and and i've been focusing on the positive stuff and and um i think you guys have really stirred up a lot of great memories for me and um and I had, I have to say that I really had a fun time uh, developing uh, these uh, toys for kids. I got to say that I did most of the design work listening to REM. <laughs> when, when I didn't know, you know, because WBRU Brown University uh, was playing ARP, and that's all they played was REM. So I thought, all right, this, uh, that's all I listened to in my in my office. So. So uh, the Conquest, uh, the Coastal Defender, and a few others were designed with nothing but REM, I think. And uh, you, uh, you know, so blah, blah, blah. Well, once again, Guy, uh, we all want to say thank you for being on the show. And uh, thank you for all the wonderful work you've done in the past and that you're continuing to do. And thank you for all the fond memories that we have. So thank you. You're welcome. And, uh, uh, guy, I was yes. going to say, guy, real quick, uh, if we did talk about your current uh, art for auto enthusiasts, oh, yes. um, if somebody oh. needed to, wanted to contact you or if somebody wanted to see your work, where would they go? Uh, they just, uh, you know, go to the uh, www, and it's all one word. It's called Art for Auto Enthusiasts. <laughs> That's a tongue twister. Dot com. Art for auto and they can see your work and do you do, do you sell originals or prints of your work there or is that something that you're uh, that's forthcoming or do you take commission work how how are you uh, doing all that well right right now it's originals um, and also I do commissioned pieces as well um, I at first I thought I'd do some prints. But I could run into some difficulties um, 
because a lot of the originals I do use um, licensed um, materials, such as, for example, uh, the 2014 Corvette, uh, when I did originals for that, because I'm giving it to a, a, a person, a customer, I'm, uh, it's a one-off, it's a one-of-one, -on, one so I would illustrate the, um, the, the exact font Corvette, and then also the, uh, the V that represents the Corvette uh, symbol. So, um, so right now, I think the, the, the question is, I think it's best to not, if I, I can't do, I, I kind of not, I'm not doing prints at the moment because I think um, I have to get into licensing. Um, but um, the pedal car uh, pieces that I'm doing that are becoming up, those are definitely cross age, you know, cross, um, they appeal to kids and adults. So, um, but uh, again, commission pieces, be very happy to do uh, anybody's car, whether it's a uh, Corvette, Buick. I, I did a 2012 Audi. So, you know, um, so it could be anything, you know, it could be a focus. <laughs> If anyone listening wants to have their Ford Focus drawn by uh, famous, uh, world famous GI Joe car or GI Joe vehicle designer Guy Cassidy, then go to artforautoenthusiasts.com. Maybe we'll draw some guns on it or uh, Laser some, cans. something for yeah. the locusts to land on. ICBMs, inter intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missiles coming out of your uh, coming out of your hybrid. Well, I think I think uh, I'd love to come back on again, and uh, there is a lot of material here, and I think you can do. Anyway, let me know what you want to do. Thank you once again. We've only used half of our questions, and we haven't talked about less. We've talked about less than half of the vehicles you designed. So, we, yeah, we definitely look forward to having you on again. And just about the work you're doing now, we'll be sure to uh, post a link to your website on our website. So, thank you once again. And uh, to everyone listening, uh, everything we've talked about, we'll post images of um, or links to images of, and. Uh, would like to, of course, thank Mr. Guy Cassidy for being on. Uh, thank you, Chris, for uh, showing up as always. And Kevin, it's good to have you back on. And uh, anyone that wants to keep up with Kevin, uh, who posts just as sporadically as we do, uh, what is it, cobra788.blogspot.com? Yeah, it's, it's – it's, I think if you just search the – the 788th Armored Division, or, or just Cobra788 Blogspot. I don't even know my own URL. It's it's a blogger thing, and it's Cobra788. If you type that into a search engine, it'll come up. Plus, there'll be lots of links. Yeah, there'll be links uh, to the, the images to his site. But I, it, your 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 blog is good for other things other than just this episode. So, right. I, I mean, I do. I, I, basically, I just do what interests me. So there'll be customs. Sometimes I cover stuff that's. Uh, been released. Sometimes I cover bootleg stuff. You know, it's it's whatever interests me within GI Joe. I put up. All right. Thanks, guy. Bye, guys. You have a good night. You too. Bye bye. Bye. And it looked like a, a big turtle. It looked like a Hi, this is John Golombievsky, also known as Pila from the forums. As a kid, I loved the Coastal Defender. It was the closest thing we had to mask in GI Joe at the time. A harmless crate that transforms into an anti-aircraft station. How cool is that? The most commonplace scenario with my friends 
It was Cobra always trying to ambush the Joes. They had the secret weapon, usually being towed by the vamp at the time, waiting to be deployed. As an adult collector, I know a lot of people want to put it down as lame. Oh, hey, they have to stop and set it up. Well, let me tell you. In the real world, most mobile command centers aren't giant sand crawlers. They're tents or box trailers, things that can be set up quick and then packed up and moved in a moment's notice. Well, that in a nutshell is the Coastal Defender, a nice little surprise for Cobra. I didn't own a Rolling Thunder until I was a member of the online G.I. Joe community. One of my friends in the Bay Area was getting rid of some of his items and sold it to me on the cheap. I drooled over it for a long time on Yo Joe, but until you have it in your own hands, You have no idea how cool it actually is. So many things going on with it. So many stations for your figures to go. You take the Havoc, the Mauler, and some gun stations, and let's just throw in some intercontinental ballistic missiles with cluster bombs for good measure. That thing was made to deliver hell to your doorstep in a hurry. That doesn't get you. The six-wheeled mini roller will. If it isn't in your top five vehicles of the line, well, it should be. Hi, I'm Nathan Aviard. I'm 666 Werecat from Australia. Just uh, in regards to the Rolling Thunder, I remember when I was a kid, I'd never seen one of these in Australia. Um, big, big toys like that were probably a little bit before I was into getting G.I. Joes. I, um, I got a catalogue from the 88 range that I'd found inside a secondhand Joe comic. At a, at a thrift store. I remember opening it up and seeing that, and I was amazed by how big it was. And I, I really wanted one, but obviously no hope of getting it. It was probably about 10 years later, I would say, that I, I purchased one off eBay. And I, when it came, I definitely wasn't disappointed. It's it's a massive toy. It's almost, you know, it's almost a playset, but it's got the durability of a vehicle. Um, you know, for something so big, I really like how strong wheels so that you can you can really roll it around and have a bit of fun with it. All the features of it, the missiles are incredible in there. Um, I love that they open up and have those further yellow bombs inside it. The little vehicle, um, everything. It just works. It's just a well-designed toy. Joint Declassified Spec Ops. 